Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Servants of Grace Theology segment. On today's episode, one of our listeners writes in, and they have a great question, and the question is this. Are desires inherently evil? Well, this is a really important question. You see, James knows that we can view a test as a trial and turn to God for aid, and so we persevere. Or we can read it as a tragedy or as a senseless accident or as even a failure on God's part to love and to protect us. Worse Yet some who meet trials blame and even attack uh, God for them, accusing him of malice. They say he tests them too severely, pushing them towards sin so they will they will fall. And when they face tests, they do not endure but give up. Believing failure is inevitable, they do fail. And then they seek someone to blame. They say uh, what James 1.13 says, God is tempting me. He is leading me to ruin. James says that this is preposterous in James 1.13. God never singles anyone out for impossible tests. Tests, they are bound to fail. God does not entice men and women to sin. To do so would be evil. Neither God, neither is God tempted to do evil, nor does he entice others to do evil. That would be evil too. God does test his people. Genesis 22 teaches that God tested Abraham when he asked him to sacrifice Isaac. That is, God gave Abraham an opportunity to demonstrate each day and then told them to gather nothing beyond the needs but to trust God to rain down the manna the next day. The test of Abraham's uh, faith revealed the strength of his faith, but the test of Israel revealed their lack of faith. And so did God's tests become temptations at some point? Yes and no. By his design, tests provide the opportunity to endure faith, to grow strong, to receive a crown. And yet God knows, and he controls all things. He knows that some will face tests and fail. The same event is a test from one perspective for one person and a temptation uh, from another perspective for another person. In the Greek, the same noun can mean a test, a trial, or even a temptation. And the cognate verb can mean to test, a trial, or even to tempt. And the context determines what the author has in mind, a test that lets people prove themselves or a temptation that leads them into sin. In James one twelve, the word test means, in verse 13, it means tempt. And excuse me, in James one twelve, the word means test. In verse 13, it means tempt. And so if the same event can be a test or a temptation, can the charge be valid? Does God lead people into temptation and sin? The answer is no, according to James. If a test becomes a temptation, it is a sinful human nature that makes it so. God does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted by his evil desire. James 1, 13 through 14. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray that we would not be led in temptation. That, that is, if he, he tells us to petition the Father to spare us from the test, we would not be doomed. We would be doomed to fail. But if we do fail, it's because our desires lure and entice us, James 1.14. And in biblical language, desires are not evil. For example, in Luke 22.15, Jesus desires to 
eat the Last Supper with his disciples. In 1 Thessalonians 2.17, Paul desires to see the Thessalonians. And yet, if we count the uses of the term desire, most desires are sinful. And this reminds us that our desires easily turn evil so that we can readily turn something good in itself to evil. For example, a woman's beauty is intrinsically both good and innocent. Beauty by itself never forces anyone to sin. Men ought to be capable of noticing God's handiwork with the female form with perfect innocence. They can have a detached admiration, much as a visitor to an art gallery has detached admiration for a still life painting of fruit on a table, but many men have a difficulty with such a detachment. Approval of beauty becomes a desire for beauty, and desire for beauty becomes lust for beauty. Where does the fault line lie? With the beauty created by God, intended by the woman? No, it lies with the man who so readily turns the approval to lust. Physical beauty and automotive excellence are good in them of themselves, and yet if we add selfish desire to them, they can become occasions for sin. In Luke twenty two fifteen, in God's perfect timing, the hour had come for Jesus to sit with his beloved disciples, waiting on them at the meal that signified their salvation. With a heart full of love, their host told them how much he had been looking forward to being alone with them and around the table that night. In fact, the word he used for earnest desire expresses intense longing. Jesus Christ was a man of perfect passions. We see this throughout Luke's gospel. His scornful attempt for religious hypocrisy, his merciful compassion for the lost and the broken, and his holy jealousy for the true worship of God. In fact, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, we see his ardent affection for his disciples. There is no one Jesus would rather have been with on this last night than his closest friends. In fact, as he looked into the faces of the men gathered around the table that night, his heart was full because his intense longing was to share this meal with them was satisfied. And so why did Jesus have this deep desire? Well, it may have been because the Passover was such a blessed occasion for the people of God. Passover was a sacramental celebration of God's deliverance, a commemoration of the Israel's exodus. Every year, the people of God offered a lamb to remember the sacrificial blood that had saved their ancestors on the famous night in Egypt when the angel of death passed over their houses. They ate the bitter herbs to remember the bitter years of their slavery to Pharaoh, but they ate them while reclining at a table, a symbol of freedom to show that they were no longer slaves. And yet they also ate unleavened bread to symbolize their hasty departure the night they made their exodus from Egypt. The people of God look forward to doing all of this at the Passover. For Jesus and his disciples, the feast brought back some of the happiest memories of their childhood, making the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, eating roast lamb with their families, and praising God for his salvation. Jesus was not just longing for Passover— he, he was also anticipating his death on the cross. And it's in this context he earnestly desired to eat and drink with his disciples. Jesus was specific about this. He said in Luke twenty two fifteen, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And you see, for many months, Jesus had been telling his disciples he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, Luke 9, 22. And now the conspiracy was underway that would culminate in his crucifixion. But there was something Jesus wanted to do first. Before he suffered, he wanted to host the farewell feast for his disciples that would help them understand what he was about to do for their salvation. 
Jesus desired to have all of this, all of the Passovers with all of his disciples, because the feast was about to find its fulfillment. Passover was a time to look back and even remember how God had saved his people in the past. In the plan of God, Passover also looked forward to the full and the final salvation that God would provide in the person and work of the Messiah. At first, it may sound as if Jesus was telling his disciples that after an undetermined delay, he would sit down and share this meal with them again. If so, then Jesus must have been thinking in terms of his coming glory and referring to the last of all the feasts, what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.9. Jesus meant that he would never share Passover with them again. In fact, in the Hebrew usage, the word until does not necessarily imply that, that something will happen again. When the Bible says the prophet Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death in 1 Samuel 15.35, this does not mean that, that Samuel bumped into Saul the day that he died, but that he never saw him again at all. And similarly, Jesus was telling his disciples that this was their last Passover. Soon that sacrament would find its true fulfillment in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, and they would never have occasion to celebrate it together again. Instead, the people of God would celebrate the new sacrament of the new covenant in Christ by eating the bread and drinking the wine of the Lord's Supper. I want to thank you for listening or even watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.